morning, church family. Let's open up our Bibles to uh, the book of Acts and chapter 13. As you uh, drove in this morning, as many of us uh, are thankful to have the opportunity to do in this post-lockdown um, uh, uh, in-between stage of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, uh, you recognize that our church is uh, located in a cul-de-sac. And uh, we often see from our office windows or even when we're making our way back or forth from church, people trying to find a way to, you know, a shortcut to, to Georgetown or a way to get to steals from Argentia. And they sort of disappointedly turned around in our uh, parking lot because we're physically located in a cul-de-sac. Now, what is true of our church geographically and physically cannot be true of our church spiritually. Our church is not meant to be a spiritual cul-de-sac. When, when we have been going through this series on the church and thinking about a baptism and membership and the Lord's Supper and elders and deacons and all of these different facets, the idea is, is never that God would just place us and place all of those things, all of those components of what it means to be uh, the church and to simply have us stay in one place. No, God's heart is a heart for church planting, that part of being a healthy church is a, a church that is looking to expand, that what God has given us here at Hope Church or really in every local church is not just is not just to be kept to ourselves, but that we are supposed to be looking to expand and share with others what God has done in our midst. So we're going to begin today in Acts chapter 13, uh, verse 1. We're going to end at the end of Acts chapter 14 in verse 28. We've got two chapters to cover. We won't be able to look and study every single verse here, but we're going to be looking at the first church in the book of Acts that truly got this. The church at Antioch, which is a city in Syria, and this church was really planted by accident. It, pl it was planted as a result of the persecution that was inflicted on the church in Jerusalem after Stephen was martyred. There was this mass persecution and the, the church there in Jerusalem, some of them stayed, but many of them scattered. And as they scattered, they started sharing the gospel and they started making disciples. And as they were making disciples, those disciples formed into churches. And the church of Antioch was the first church that we see in the Bible that looked at what was happening and said, what we have here is too good for us to keep to ourselves. We can't be a cul-de-sac. We must be an on-ramp onto the highway of God's vision and plan for the nations. And so with, with an understanding that our church can't be a cul-de-sac, our church must be an on-ramp onto the highway of God's Mission. We're going to look at the church of Antioch and the people that were sent out from there to plant churches to get a better understanding of what healthy church planting looks like. And so look with me in Acts chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. It says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. 
Today, we're going to see five things. Have a healthy church planting. What does it mean for us to engage in church planting? Here's the first one. Church planting means seeking the Lord. It means seeking the Lord. Here we have this church. And the, the, it's noted here that there are five recognized gifted communicators that are identified as prophets and Teachers. Now, prophets like apostles, these were temporary offices in local churches in the early church before uh, the word of God was, was put into, uh, into, as we have it now, the writing and the teaching of the apostles. But the prophets had an important role to play, a foundational role as it's described elsewhere in the, uh, in the New Testament. Barnabas is mentioned. He's the one in Acts chapter 11, verse 20, when this church gets initially started, Barnabas is the one who's sent from Jerusalem to go and to give leadership to this church. Then we have Simeon, who is, who is called Niger, as in Nigeria, as in the Latin word for, for black. Now, we don't know this for sure, but chances are this Simeon uh, individual was, was from Africa. We know for sure that Lucius of Cyrene was from Africa because Cyrene is present-day Libya. And so we have this multicultural church. Then we have Menaean. He was a childhood friend of Herod the Tetrarch. That, that's the guy who put John the Baptist's head on a platter. I mean, this guy would have had some stories to tell. I mean, this guy grew up playing Mario Kart and street hockey with Herod. And he, he grew up sort of in that palace uh, lifestyle, but God got a hold of him and he was now a leader in the church at Antioch. And then, of course, Saul, who we know as Paul the Apostle. Barnabas personally recruited Paul to come and to be part of the teaching team at this growing church in Syria. Now, notice that they were seeking the Lord. And in verse 2, it says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. You see, more than more than seeking to plant churches, the church at Antioch was simply just seeking the Lord. They were worshiping him and they were fasting and to sort of sharpen the edge on their worship. They were setting aside food and regular comfort so that when they felt hungry for food, they were reminded of the hunger that they ought to have for God. That's part of what fasting is. And so they're worshiping and they're fasting and the Holy Spirit says to them, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. They were leaning in. They were seeking the Lord. And the Lord directed them. Now it doesn't give details about how the Spirit communicated this. But it was clear to the whole church that this is what God wanted. To take this step of faith to send Barnabas and Saul. It says in verse 2, for the work. That, that's the work of international church planting. And this is a turning point. As I said, every single church up until this point was sort of planted by accident. And now here we have a church intentionally engaging in the work of church planting. Then in verse 3, it says, after fasting and praying, they, 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 after they got this clear word from the Lord, they didn't think, well, we don't need to pray about it anymore. Now we know what we need to do. But in light of the significance of what they were doing, they fasted and they prayed more. Churches that plant are churches that pray. And what we have here is an example of a praying church that becomes a planting church. And when we pray, when we truly seek the Lord, here's what will happen. Because our God is so big, when we seek the Lord, we will end up with a bigger vision. And we will end up with a wider mission. 
And God will always push us to the farthest border of our comfort zone and challenge us to move forward. That's what it means to, uh, to seek the Lord. And so they lay out this big plan to send Paul and Barnabas. Now note that it's Paul and Barnabas that are sent. And this is the second thing we need to understand if we're going to understand church planting. That church planting means sending your best. It means sending your best. Verse 3 says that they sent them off. The church is the one that does the sending. There were no missions organizations. There were no parachurch uh, ministries at the time. There was just the church at Antioch, and they were the ones who sent Paul and Barnabas on mission. Now, we're thankful for missions organizations. We're thankful for parachurch ministries, but we need to understand the role that they play and be really clear on their role. The role that they play is to help the church do the sending. It's always the church that is supposed to be doing the sending and the planting. Churches plant churches. And that's the, the aim and the pattern that we see here in the New Testament. Now, I'm sure when... It was being made clear by the Spirit that it was supposed to be Paul and Barnabas that were supposed to be sent. I'm sure some people in the congregation, like their hearts, as, as excited as they were about this new initiative, I'm sure some of their hearts just like would have sunk. Like, oh, does it have to be those two? I mean, imagine if the Apostle Paul was part of the teaching rotation on your church. And now they're not going to have any more sermons on a regular basis from this brilliant theologian and gifted pastor and preacher. Uh, Barnabas, his name means son of encouragement. You're, you're no longer going to have Barnabas to sort of lead the charge or, or to rally, the, the, rally the, uh, the, the fellow brothers and sisters to come alongside you when you're hurting, to think, how are we going to survive without Barnabas and without Paul? Well, remember, there were five leaders that were listed here. And so every time a church gets involved in sending, it's an opportunity for new leaders to step up. And so this is an opportunity for Simeon and Menaean and Lucius to, to step up. Paul and Barnabas had been involved in training and equipping these leaders. And I'm sure a lot of the church, including the remaining three leaders, would have preferred that Paul and Barnabas stay. But that's not how God orchestrated it. Listen, if we're going to seek the Lord, we're going to have to do things God's way. And God's way is always involving generosity. It's always involving sacrifice. And it's always involving faith. It would have been a huge step of faith for the church at Antioch to say, okay, we're going to envision a future without Paul and Barnabas leading this church. Okay, we're going, to, we're going to sacrifice our own comfort and our own love for these people and our own desire to have them lead us and teach us for the sake of making sure that others have the opportunity to grow in the gospel. I think about sending uh, Ray and Natalie Kaprowski to, off to Ottawa to, to plant a church. We sure would have benefited. I mean, wouldn't we all love those of us who remember Ray? Wouldn't we still love to have him here, you know, climbing into people's car windows to welcome them to church? I think about Marvin and Kim McCoody and the 30 or 40 people that were sent out from, uh, from our, uh, from, to plant our, our church plant, Hope Church Toronto North. And we think about how much we, we loved that family and all of those other families and the way that they all served on our welcome team or on our worship team or in other leadership positions. 
I think about a family that will remain nameless in the country where they ended up. I won't mention either because this is being posted online, but a family in our church that had been part of our church family right from the very beginning and served as small group leaders. And then the husband even served as an, as an elder in our church. And then God made it very clear that, that the calling on their life to full-time missions, that now was the time. And several months ago, they uprooted their family and moved their business overseas. And now God is using them in the work of missions and church planting. It would be great if we still had all of those people still here. But if we're going to seek the Lord, we're going to have to do it the Lord's way. And that's going to require generosity and sacrifice and faith. God gathers the church together, but he also gathers the church together so that some of those members can be scattered, so that there can be more gatherings. And so they're sent off. In verse 4 it says, and so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to, to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Now Cyprus is an island. You can see this on the map here. This is where Barnabas is actually from. So the first place they went was, was the island, the, the place that Barnabas knew. This seemed like an initial, a, a good place to start. Verse 5, when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John uh, to assist them. Now, let's just think about this. You can see on the map that they're headed for a present-day uh, Turkey. They're, they're headed for southeastern Europe. Now, we need to be, really be careful here. We need to think biblically about missions, because when I often say overseas missions, or when I talk about cross-cultural evangelism, or I think about when I, when I use the, the, the term planting churches internationally, what often comes to our mind are white Europeans traveling to places like the Middle East and Africa to plant churches. But let's take a, let's, let's just, let's take a close look at what's happening here. Here's the church at Antioch who are this isn't, a, this isn't a situation where white Europeans are being sent to plant churches in Africa and the Middle East. No, we have a church made up of people from Africa and the Middle East being sent to plant churches among white Europeans. That, that is how church planting actually started. And when you study how missions and church planting is working all around the world, that idea of white Western missionaries being the ones who are going to reach these, that's not how it's working. And that's not how it worked initially in the book of Acts either. So on Cyprus, again, we're not going to be able to study every verse here, but from verses 5 to 12, they run into this politician named Sergius Paulus. And he has sort of a right-hand man, a, a Jewish sorcerer, kind of like a, a Rasputin-type character. And his name is Bar-Jesus. And he tries to get in the way of Sergius Paulus becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. And God performs a miracle, and, and this sorcerer ends up going blind, and sorcery can't solve it. And Sergius Paulus then, this influential politician on the island of Cyprus, ends up becoming a Christian. And then they make their way for the coast from a Cyprus. Look at chapter 13, verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them there, and return to Jerusalem. You see, here's the truth. We, when, if we're going to be involved in church planting, we need to be willing to send our best. But sometimes, even when we send our best, like this John, John Mark, who accompanied them, not everyone who starts with us finishes with us. 
And not everyone who's initially committed to the mission finishes the mission. And part of working with people and and part of working within the church is being prepared for the disappointments that come our way. This seemingly insignificant uh, verse in verse 13 where it says John left them and returned to Jerusalem. We don't know, maybe he got seasick after traveling the Mediterranean seas. Maybe he looked at the 160 kilometer journey that was ahead of them to get up to uh, Antioch and Pisidia. But he just quit. John Mark just quit. Later on in Acts chapter 15, it seems so insignificant here, but this caused Paul and Barnabas to have such a sharp disagreement over this person and whether or not he was faithful or not that Paul and Barnabas actually parted ways. And so we need to be prepared. People are going to, as we're seeking the Lord, people are going to let us down. Disappointment will come. So in verse 14, they come to Antioch. So they're, they're from Antioch in Syria, but now they're in Antioch in a region called Pisidia, in a province called Galatia. Actually, all of the territory where they're heading right now, this is Galatia. When Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians, these are the, these are the churches that he's writing to. And so they walked 160 kilometers from the shore up to Antioch through mountain ranges. It's the equivalent of walking all the way to London, Ontario. And there we see them go into a synagogue and we get a window into how they planted churches. And that leads us to our third point, that church planting means preaching the gospel. It means preaching the gospel So they go into the synagogue and the Apostle Paul is invited to to speak. Look with me at, at verse 15. It says, After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you had any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, the God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. So he begins with the story of the Exodus and he continues on talking about Moses and about Samuel and about Saul and about David. And then he starts to talk about John the Baptist and then about Jesus. Now look with me at verse 26. He says, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of salvation. They came to bring a message of salvation. And this is how, this is what church planting is based upon. It's based on the message of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Look with me at verse 28, talking about the religious leaders. It says, and though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, talking about Jesus, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, They took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. Here's what Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 15 as being of first importance. The the historical events related to Jesus and his crucifixion and his burial and his resurrection. And so Paul lays out these historical events, but also notice that he, he also describes the theological significance of those events. He says that after they carried out, in verse 29, after they carried out all that was written of him, Paul referred to the Old Testament prophecies and predictions that were made about a suffering servant in Isaiah 53 and elsewhere. 
Paul showed the people in the synagogue that the, the, the scripture that they were reading was truly supernatural, that it predicts the future multiple times, and specifically it predicted the death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And so to preach the gospel, it's got to be rooted in history. Jesus lived and breathed and walked the earth 2,000 years ago, and he suffered innocently. He was crucified, and he was buried, and he rose again. We preach the historical facts, but then we also infuse our discussion of the historical facts with their theological significance, that this is all the fulfillment of prophecy. But it doesn't just stop there. We don't just preach the history. We don't just preach the theology. Then we must press it into people's lives. So look with me at verse 38. It says, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Jesus died for a purpose and he rose again for, for a purpose so that our sins could be forgiven. And the, the Jewish people attending the synagogue would have thought about all of the sacrifices at the temple. They would have thought of all of the festivals that they would have attended, all with the hope that they could be forgiven of their sin. And now they are saying, no, Jesus made that sacrifice once for all. This is the gospel. And verse 39, he says, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. That word freed there, the word actually is justified. There's a footnote in your ESV Bible that there's no way to, to make yourself innocent by following the law. He says you can't be freed by the law. You can't try to obey your way to heaven. No, it's only by placing your faith in Jesus that you can be justified, that you can be considered innocent and forgiven because of the work that he has done. And so if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to hear this message that forgiveness is offered to you, that freedom is offered to you, that justification is offered to you, that you can exchange your slavery for freedom, your defeat for victory, your guilt for forgiveness, your lostness for being found, and your emptiness can be finally filled. This is what the gospel promises, and this is what the early church proclaimed. This is how the church was planted with this message. And this is how our church is to plant churches on this message. And check out the hunger that people had for a message like this. Look at verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things may be told to them the next Sabbath. The, the people there were so done with just dry, empty teaching. They were so done with the, with, the, with the philosophies of the world. When they heard the truth about Jesus and the gospel being proclaimed, they begged them to come back next week and to share more. So they came back next week, and they brought a lot of their friends. Look at verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Again, it wasn't to hear Paul. It wasn't to hear Barnabas. It was the word of God that built the church. They gathered to hear the word. But as we're preaching the gospel, we can see that opposition is only natural. Verse 45, but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul in reviling him. So, churching, Churching plants, planting churches, 
it's almost lunchtime, is, is what it means that we send our best. It means that we seek the Lord. It means that we preach the gospel. It also means that we're going to have to endure some opposition. That there are forces in this world, spiritual and secular, that are going to be opposed to what we're trying to do in planting the church. And here in verse 45, we have the, 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 the it's the Jewish leaders. They're described here just as the Jews, but it's not all Jews because Paul and Barnabas were Jewish. And a lot of the people in the synagogue that were believing were Jewish, but it was the Jewish leaders, part of the establishment, didn't like what they were seeing. They were filled with jealousy and they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul. Here's how they responded, verse 46. And Paul and Barnabas spoke to them boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God may be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and, just yourself, and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. That means the non-Jewish people or the nations. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, the nations, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So Paul here is quoting Isaiah 49, verse 6, and he's saying that we are going to, listen, we have told it to the Jewish people, and some of them have responded, but now we're going to expand our audience. God is giving us a bigger vision and a wider mission as we're seeking him. And so in fulfillment of really going all the way back to Genesis 12, when God called Abraham, he called him to bless Abraham, but also that Abraham would be a blessing, and that through Abraham's offspring, all the nations, all the Gentiles would be blessed. And then you have Isaiah 49 here prophesying that when the Messiah comes, there will be a blessing for all nations, not just the Jewish people. And then Jesus saying in Matthew 28, go to all nations and make disciples. We see that happening here in Antioch of Pisidia. Then in verse 48, it says, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as were appointed to eternal life. We need to understand that when we're preaching the gospel, we have our part in being faithful and communicating it. The person that's listening has their part in responding to it. But sovereign over all of that Sovereign over our faithful preaching, sovereign over the person's response, it is God. It's right here who appoints those who are to believe, who, are, who appoints those who are to receive eternal life. Here we see God's work, mysterious work of predestination and election playing out. The author of Acts here sees no contradiction between the faithful preaching and the earnestness, encouragement. You must believe this and the sovereign work of God. You know, when I first became a Christian, I thought, well, I'm the one who chose to follow God. I'm the one who was seeking. But then the further I walked with Jesus, the further I studied the scripture, I realized it is true in a sense that I chose God. But on a far deeper level, what's going on here is that God chose me. I'm the lost sheep. I went wandering off. I didn't even know I was lost, let alone to go looking for my shepherd. No, the shepherd came running for me. And that's, that's what's being described here. Then in verse 49, it says, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. You can't stop the word from spreading. Even though there's opposition, it's futile because it's the Lord who is behind the proclamation of his word. This is how the church is planted. 
Not through acts of service in the community, not through excellent programs or charismatic leaders, not through state-of-the-art production equipment, not through a cultural savvy. I'm not saying that, that we need to ignore all of those things, but we need to understand, we need to spend the most of our time thinking about what has God given us for churches to be planted and established, just the preaching of the word of God. Then in verse 50, it says, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution. Here's more opposition against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. So they did what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 14. If you're not welcome, if you're not wanted, then you just move on to the next place. Verse 52, and the disciples, those who did believe, were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So church planting means seeking the Lord, sending our best, preaching the gospel, enduring opposition. We see more opposition. What we're going to see here is there's just a pattern now. All throughout the book of Acts, we see this pattern of the gospel gets preached, people respond with joy, but then there's opposition. And that opposition actually pushes for the gospel not to retreat, but to actually continue to advance. It's counterproductive for those who are uh, trying to oppose the gospel. So now they come to Iconium. Let's find Iconium on the, the map here. So they head uh, southeast. They're still in the region of Galatia. Again, this trip, it doesn't look like much on the map, but it's 145 kilometers from, from Antioch of Pisidia to, uh, to this city in Galatia. And more opposition comes. Chapter 14, verse 1, Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Another, another, uh, uh, another diverse body of Christ is being birthed here in Iconium. Verse 2, But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. They were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And the gospel will do that because the gospel forces a decision. Will you believe in Jesus or not? There's no middle ground. There's no Switzerland option. You can't remain neutral. And so this, this city was divided. Look at verse 5, when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews, that's something that united them. The one thing united the, the Jews and the Gentiles was to try to kill Paul. So these two groups who normally wouldn't have anything to do with one another, with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, to throw stones at them until they die. Verse 6, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country, and there they, they continued to preach the gospel. So now they're down in Lystra and Derby. Now check out what happens in Lystra, the, the, the opposition that comes as they preach the gospel. Verse 8, Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet! And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And they call Barnabas Zeus, and they call Paul Hermes, 
and they start claiming that these are Greek gods who have come down to the earth. And the priest of Zeus go, comes, comes over from their temple and he brings all of these oxen and he's going to have a sacrifice before Paul and Barnabas. And then they, look at how they respond in verse 14. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed into the crowd saying, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Now you notice here as they're preaching the gospel in different contexts that they, they use different ways to to. to springboard into their discussion of Jesus. When they were in the synagogue in a Jewish audience, remember they started with sons of Abraham. And let me tell you about Saul and about David and about the Exodus. And that, cause that's our starting point. But when they're talking to these people that were worshiping idols, Zeus and Hermes, they, they didn't mention Abraham because Abraham would have meant nothing to them. So where did they start? They started with the idea of God as creator. They said, listen, you, you think you believe in Zeus and Hermes and all of these other gods and they're all warring with one another up there in the spiritual realm? He says, no, listen, there is one God and he is the one who has created the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Don't worry about Zeus. Don't worry about Poseidon. Our, our God created all of the sea. He created all of the earth. All of the creatures, there is one God. You see, we need to understand this when we're, when we're sharing the gospel and planting a church or even when we're sharing with our neighbors. We need to understand, where are we going to start? Do they have a religious background? Is this someone who I can start with, Abraham and Moses and that sort of thing? Or are we just trying to establish that there is a God that exists? You see, there is no carbon copy, cookie cutter, one size fits all. Here's how to share the gospel with every single person. No, we have to spend time listening and learning and we see that here in the different approaches between Antioch, Pisidia, and Lystra. So they tell them to, to turn and to believe in Jesus. Verse 18, even with these words, they could scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. They couldn't get a word in edgewise because these people were so convinced that they were gods. This is like C-3PO and the Ewoks in Return of the Jedi. You know what I'm saying? Where they think that he's a god. Now, I know I've lost some of you and others of you are like, preach, yes. More Star Wars analogies. But they, they, they just won't stop. And then here's the crazy thing. Verse 14, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds. So again, these are the Jewish religious leaders. They traveled the 150 plus kilometers to, all the way from Antioch, picked up some other people from Lyconium, and they all headed down to Lystra together. I heard Robbie Simons preach on this pa passage or a passage like this, and he, he just sort of said, get a life, right? Like you're going to travel all of this way just to try to dismantle what the Apostle Paul and Barnabas are trying to do. You went to all of this trouble to persuade this crowd. And just think, look, isn't this crowd so much like our day today? They decide to cancel Paul and Barnabas. They thought they were great. And then all of a sudden, look what happens. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. They threw large rocks at him 
until he went unconscious and they thought he was dead and then dragged him out of the city. Three minutes earlier, they were making sacrifices to him and calling him Hermes, a Greek god. You see, our, our world can turn on people so quickly. We, we can celebrate them and worship them as an idol and then immediately despise them as a demon. Human nature is no different. Mob mentality is the same as it was then as it is now. We just do it on Twitter now. Verse 20, but when the disciples gathered about him, he rose and entered the city, went back to Lystra, and on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. Verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had many disciples, so they, they get to Derby. Now again, just look at the map. They could make it to Antioch of Syria quite easily on foot now. It would actually make the most sense, you know, sleep in their own bed. Paul had just stones thrown at him. Uh, this now would be a good time just to say, you know what, let's have a little bit of a Sabbath. Let's have a little bit of a furlough, kind of a, a rest here. And Paul does something absolutely crazy. He goes back the same way that he came. He goes back, stop number one, to Lystra. They return to Ly the place where they were just trying to kill him. He, he's so courageous in the face of opposition. He's so clearly filled with the Spirit because no one would rationally do this. So he goes back to Lystra in verse 21 and to Iconium and to Antioch, making his way backwards. Verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Verse 23, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And so here they are, going back to visit all of the churches. Why? Because they weren't just looking to scatter as and broadly as, as, as they possibly could. No, they wanted the churches to be deep. And so they went back and they invested in them and they trained them and they appointed elders so that these could be healthy, life-giving churches that would in turn plant other churches. And notice the, the prayer and fasting. Our, our study this week began with prayer and fasting at the church of Antioch and now all of these other churches are praying and fasting. You need to pray and fast for those who are called to go and pray and fast for those who are called to stay because both are going to face opposition. So they committed them to the Lord in whom they have believed. And then this brings us to our fifth and final point that church planting means glorifying God. It means glorifying God. Verse 24, then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, and they went down to Atalia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they had arrived, they gathered the church. It was the church that sent them. And so the church then is gathered together. And notice this. And they declared all that God had done with them. It, was all, it wasn't all that Paul did, all that Barnabas did. It was all that God had done. And how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, to the nations. And they remained no little time with the disciples. God was the one who started it. And God was the one who finished it. God gave the call, so God gets the credit. God provided the grace, so God deserves the glory. When we think about church planting, it's not about having a whole bunch of churches that are called Hope Church planted here, there, and everywhere. It's not about promoting a particular person or a program or a philosophy of ministry. It's all about God. It's all about seeking the Lord 
And it's all about glorifying God. That's what church planting is all about. May we be faithful in following this glorious example. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that as we read this this text, Lord, it's so clear how you want churches to be established. And God, I pray that we would be faithful, that we would be faithful at this time and this moment with the resources, with the people that you have entrusted to us, that we would be earnestly seeking you to ask, what is next? Who are you calling? Who are you sending? Where are you working? And how can we join you, Lord? We want to bring glory to you. We want to seek your face. We pray for your help and your guidance. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen.